This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. I'm getting back to a regular schedule, and this week I'm returning to an interview that I ran in part before Christmas last year with documentary filmmaker Mitchell Kezen, who made the 2013 documentary on Christmas music titled Jingle Bell Rocks. If you haven't seen it yet, you can find it for free on Amazon Prime and the Roku channel, or you can pay Apple TV and a bunch of other platforms to watch it. I ran a portion of this interview last Christmas season, but there was so much we didn't get to that we're gonna to return to it this week. Kezen is my kind of people, a guy with a crazy Christmas music collection and the desire to share it. In his case, that manifested with a yearly mix, which is always where it starts. And it went on to become a documentary. We talk about collecting, the songs that started him, and the movies he made. One of the big gets for the film was Wayne Coyne of Flaming Lips, and Kezen talks about that experience, from trying to get Coyne, to going to the Flaming Lips compound, to shooting the interview, all about it. Let's start with one of my favorite songs from Jingle Bell Rocks, Close Your Mouth, It's Christmas, by The Free Design. finally scored uh, probably what I think is the holy grail of Hawaiian Christmas records by a guy named Roy Smek. Do you remember him? I recognize he the name. He was a ukulele, steel guitar ukulele yeah. master okay. from the 40s to 60s, and he recorded um, on X Records label. Uh, this is like 1954, I think, 10-inch so there's two 10-inch sides, so there's like six songs per record, two records. Right. Um, mostly secular songs, but just beautiful guitar yeah. playing. And uh, they're all instrumentals, and I've been searching for those for, well, 25 years. And I finally found them earlier this year on eBay, and the guy was oh, that's super right. generous. He, he sold them to me for 25 bucks for both records. Wow. They were mint condition. I couldn't believe it. Oh, that's, uh, that's great. Yeah. So that, that for me is like, now I'm just looking for stuff that I don't even know about, you know, sure. from the, in the Hawaiian, just doesn't seem to be a lot of it. And anything that's relatively new, um, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's a production thing or there's just not that much good stuff that's being released currently, you know? Right. But then I'm a bit of a nostalgist. I go for the older stuff anyway. Why did you decide to make Jingle Bell Rock? The answer to that is, a, is several fold. First thing that happened was I was struggling to find a subject to make a documentary film about, and nothing was working. Um, it was literally a few weeks before Christmas, and I was at a party, a film industry party, and a producer who I didn't know that well, but who I knew of, uh, who I'd sent a Mary mix to the previous year uh, came up to me and he's like, Hey Mitchell, just wanted to, to ask if you're going to make another mix this year. And 
And I'd love to get another copy because last year was so great. And I took that tape to all the parties I went to and it just blew people's minds and the music was so cool. And I said, oh, hmm. well, thanks so much. Yes, I'm making another tape, uh, another mix, and you're still on my list. So uh, you'll definitely get one in the mail sometime soon. But let's have a further chat about this. The light bulb just went off then and there. I was like, oh, my God why not make this into a film? The main reason was I knew all of these artists, you know, from Wayne Coyne to, to Rev Run, DMC, to Clarence Carter, Bob Duro, that they cared, you know, they'd been interviewed a ton of, ton of times about all the music they'd recorded over the years. But in my research, no one had ever spoken to them or asked them about their Christmas songs or Christmas songs. Some had just one song that they'd written and recorded. Others had several or a full album, like Low. And Low had been talked, had been interviewed about their, they were the, the only band in the entire 32 song soundtrack who actually had been interviewed about their music, their Christmas music. And I knew that they cared as deeply about their Christmas uh, tracks as they did anything else that they'd, that they'd made and created. And I knew they'd probably have an interesting story to tell about, you know, where the song came from and that whole process of bringing it to life. And I knew that that was also my way into getting to secure these people for the movie, which took still almost five years to secure some of the folks some of the bigger names in the movie. Uh, the lesser ones took time as well because I didn't know how to find them. Um, like Akeem, whose father wrote Santa Claus is a Black Man, and she appears on that record from 1972, I believe. You know, she's a 10-year-old girl back then. Now she's a 45-year-old, and I had to... I found her on Christmas Eve that, that <laughs> year before we finished the movie. Uh, it was crazy. Uh, I had searched for her for six years. Couldn't find her anywhere. I mean, all I knew was her name was Akeem. I didn't know her full name. There was scant information about the record online. You know, her father had, had, had been ill. Sadly, he passed away during the making of the film. So that's why there's no interview with him. But um, yeah, I knew all, every single one of these artists would have a really interesting story to tell. And so... I wanted to make the movie because I wanted to hear those stories and I wanted to meet these artists and I wanted to dig deeper into um, that whole world. And I hoped that in doing so, um, you know, I would bring not only those songs to life in the movie, but open people's eyes and ears to a whole new world of Christmas music that they never knew existed. The subtitle of the film at the time was The Songs Even Santa Claus Forgot, <laughs> which, I thought was, which I thought was pretty clever. Yeah. yeah. So, Bell Rocks was not the greatest title for a movie, but it was like, I wanted something short and sweet and punchy, and I wanted to have Christmas somewhere. If you think about all the, like many of the biggest Christmas classics, uh, they're really short. And they have Christmas in the title, you know? Yep. Um, so 
you know, that's what I was aiming for. So that that was a that was a huge controversy with the with certain folks involved uh, in the uh, movie was that was that title, but I yeah. think it worked. Yeah. That interest, that Christmas music interests me, is because it is simultaneously spiritual, social, commercial, um, just in a starting place. And then I've always thought it was really was always. And uh, what drew me to Christmas music is that it is an artist's challenge. Yeah. And what do you if you are if you're going to do a version of uh, White Christmas? How do you do a version of White Christmas that has a reason to exist? And if Precisely. you're going to write a Christmas song, how do you write something that fits into this tight little window? And yeah. what do you have to say, really, about yeah. about the holiday? Yeah, yeah. And so it is a you know it's a challenge for a songwriter. What do you, you know, how do you how do you work in that space? And yeah. so for me, almost everything I love about any music shows up in Christmas music almost in like hyper-focus. Yeah. So, but I understand because even that's uh, a, a, a beefy answer. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I love Christmas music for those, all those reasons you just described. Uh, because, and also because it's, it's unique as a, a genre, if you can call it a genre. In that it encompasses all the different. It's unique as a musical form. Let's let's say it that way. In that it encompasses almost every genre of music you can think of, from country and western to hip hop to heavy metal to bebop to. And I find that fascinating, and it's great when you come across uh, a cover of a classic chestnut that's really where they've just taken it and twisted it and made it truly their own and done something interesting and original and unique rather than just a faster punk rock version, which I can't stand right. or just a heavy metal version of whatever jingle bells. It's right. like, why, what's, why does this need to exist? Why do I need to listen to this? I don't. And sadly with it being so much easier to release music now digitally via Bandcamp and other places, I'm finding there's a ton of Drek, way more than there used to be. Because before, maybe the last decade and a half, two decades, when I started thinking about making the movie, you really had to commit to a Christmas song in that you had to spend a lot of money to make it possible to provide, to give your, to, to give birth to your song because you had to make a record. You had to go to a recording studio. You had to do all these things to get out there into the world. Now it's way easier to reach an audience immediately directly. And there are, there's, it's a, it's both great and not so great in my opinion. Uh, um, I, I have to say, I think, 
I think if we realistically look at our collections, that there's a lot of crap in there that that came sure. out in physical forms. Well, uh, I'm not denying that, yeah. but there's just more, way more of it now. That's all I think. Yeah, maybe so. Or is or it's you don't easier. Think you don't I don't know. Um, maybe if, just, if maybe it it's is, just easier to find. Yes, that's that's maybe, it. It's just easier to find. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah, we don't have to go rummaging through bins to pick up things and go home and find out. Now that's shit. So yeah, uh, take a take take a chance on a, spending five bucks on an album that you just know. Oh, uh, there might be one good cut on this, if that. And man, I've got all these others, and I've only got twenty five dollars. Oh, I've been in that situation so many times. It's yeah. heart wrenching. So I know with you know, I have one other other thing to say. Um, when I started talking about the movie to people, it became really interesting because if I got that um, awesome answer, like, oh, that sounds cool, that sounds interesting, once I got beyond the initial reaction, uh I would find without fail, every single person has that one Christmas song that for them basically encompasses the holiday. When it, Christmas doesn't begin until they hear that song. And, and there's one song that resonates with them so deeply. And I found that with almost everyone I talked to. And that was a really interesting conversation to have with folks. And of course, the, the whole, uh, my whole movie is structured around a single song that had that kind of an impact on, on me as a young child. And when that song never got played on the radio, uh, I might've heard it in my whole life. Now I'm 57 years old, maybe three times. Wow. You know, um, other songs from that record have been on the, I've heard on the radio, but not that one. So why don't and you go ahead and tell, why don't you go ahead and tell listeners what song we're talking about? Okay, we're talking about a very obscure song on the B-side of a Nat King Cole Christmas album uh, on Capitol Records called The Magic of Christmas with Children. And it's a song called The Little Boy That Santa Claus Forgot. And I remember hearing that for the very first time. I was maybe just, just I remember it, it was when we had moved to Calgary, Alberta, I was living here with my parents the first three years of my life. We moved to Calgary and it was the first Christmas after we moved in the summer. So it would have been 1967. So I was, I, I just turned four. And that was the Nat King Cole record was one of the handful of albums that we had uh, for Christmas time. Uh, and in the song, Nat King Cole uh, has these, little spoken word stanzas in between some of the sung parts. And the basis of the so song is that for reasons that aren't fully explained, but this boy, his father isn't around. And because of that, he's forced to play with his old broken down toys. And Santa is going to not purposefully not visit him because of his familial situation. Now, all that is far more complex than what I perceived as a child. What struck me as a four-year-old was just the whole notion of Santa Claus not visiting here. That seemed terrifying to me. 
that seemed like something that, you know, you're a good kid or you're a bad kid and, you know, you have to be good and Santa will visit and you'll be, he'll bring you presents and he loves you and all these things. And the idea that that wasn't going to happen was really scary. And also, like I said, there are these spoken word bits in the song where Nat King Cole describes the boy's situation and it mimicked my own childhood. My father wasn't around, particularly at Christmas time. He'd go on three, four day benders and just be gone, uh, AWOL. We had no idea where he was, but so that song just hit me so deep and so directly. And um, for many, many years, as I became older into my early teens and started really paying attention to music, not just at Christmas time, but through the whole year, started finding artists I enjoyed, buying records. I longed to have that feeling again this time from another song. And nothing for many years, particularly within the chestnuts, made me feel that same way. It made me feel something deeply like that. And it made me start to question everything that is then now, you know, kind of, that's sort of the theme of the, of the film. But it was that one song that, that really, um, and when we started making the movie, that, that song wasn't going to even be talked about or, or, or mentioned. You know, it wasn't until quite a ways into production that I finally had to sort of deal with, you know, why am I really making this film? And does that need to be part of the narrative structure of the movie and, and be included in the film? And then when I realized it did, then it was like all these other questions of, you know, how to tell my story. And, you know, I, there are very few films where the director is in the movie that work and that are really good. And I didn't want to be that. This was my first feature length documentary. And I, there was so much pressure. And I just, I was like, I don't feel comfortable on camera. You know, how am I going to, direct myself and then interview folks and control the whole situation and be in the movie. It was, but I realized I had to figure it out. And, well, people, well, people can judge for themselves whether it's successful or not, but uh, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's why I'm in there. It was inevitable, I think. And, and it's, you know, it, it's, it's the spine of the film. It's the emotional heart of the movie. And, you know, I think it, I think it works well, but, um, yeah, I'll leave that to the audience oh. of folks who check it out who haven't already seen it. Here's the little boy that Santa Claus forgot. And goodness knows he didn't want a lot. He is sent alone to Santa for some soldiers and a drum It broke his little heart When he found Santa hadn't come In the street he envies all those lucky boys Then wanders home to last year Broken toys I'm so sorry for 
when did you start collecting music? When did it go from a fascination into something that you just simply had to keep acquiring? Well, literally that same Christmas season that I, actually it wasn't Christmas time, it was summer that I came across the, one of the probably best in my opinion, classic Christmas jazz albums of all time is called Jingle Bell Jazz, released by Columbia Records in 1962. And it's the last song on the B-side of that record that features everyone from Count Basie to Ella Fitzgerald to um, uh, Herbie Hancock, uh, just all the best, I mean, Capitol Records had access to the best, most famous musicians of the day. And this was in the early 60s. The last song on the B-side of that record, which I had just discovered in a thrift shop that summer um, here in Vancouver, uh, it's still around. I still shot there once a week or so, uh, was the Miles Davis, Bob Duro collaboration on Blue X was doing very concern. When I got home and I heard that record and I heard that song, um, it blew my mind. And it made me realize there's got to be more of these kinds of songs out there. And I just stumbled over that record. I didn't, I wasn't looking for it. I didn't even know it existed. I hadn't, I was just in the early days of getting to, to understand, you know, who was important within the jazz world and trying to find, you know, records by artists that I'd heard of, but I'd never listened to before. And this, I knew Miles Dave, I knew Miles Davis, of course. And I knew Bob Duro from Schoolhouse Rock. And I thought, what the heck is this? And it was the only, what was really interesting, this is what also got me started on, got the collecting bug started, was that it was the only original title on that album. Every, every other artist was doing covers of classic chestnuts. But Miles Davis being Miles said, I'm not, first of all, he didn't want to participate, but he was contractually obligated to to contribute a song to this album. And he put it off as late as he possibly could. And then out of desperation, he called Duro, who he had only recently met in, and he called Bob in LA and he said, I need, you know, basically I need your help. I need you to write me a Christmas song. And uh, the result is phenomenal. Um, and so that song, I just thought, okay, there's gotta be more of these. So that's when I started collecting was, just that year. And I came across within a few weeks, I came across, uh, I went to a, a Salvation Army store in New Westminster, which is about a, back then I was riding the bus, an hour long bus ride. I got there to the store. Somehow I misread the hours. So they were closed, but someone had left a box of Hawaiian Christmas records ah, at the doorstep ah, of the ah, shop. Ah. And I was like, it was like a miracle from, you know, it was like a Christmas miracle. I'm standing there. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even know there was such a thing as Hawaiian Christmas songs. I mean, I kind of remembered, oh, Melikulikimaka, okay. But these were, these are some of the most collectible Christmas albums that, that are selling for lots of dollars now. I got the whole thing for, I think I, I'm pretty sure I left $5 in the box that took all the records ah, <laughs> and ah, I, ah, I tailed ah, it home because ah, ah. I just was like, I got to hear these and I don't want anyone to see me taking them all. Merry 
Christmas. I hope you have a white one, but for me, it's blue. Blue Christmas. That's the way you see it when you're feeling blue. Blue Xmas. When you're blue at Christmas time, you see right through all the waste, all the sham, all the haste, and plain old bad taste. Sidewalk Santa Claus. Are, are you somebody who's prone to collecting stuff? Oh, yeah. Much to my wife's chagrin. Yeah, I don't collect just Christmas stuff. Christmas at records. I collect a lot of other things, and I'm trying to dispose of it all a little bit at a time. We pay hundreds of dollars for a storage locker. That's just such a waste of money. Yeah, it's, it's, it's upsetting. But um, I've gotten way better about buying records. I used to just go to thrift stores and just buy, you know, come home with 20, 30, 40 records at a time. All the time. Every weekend I would do that. Now I have a little portable Newmark turntable that I carry with me. I got that idea from Andy Serzan, who's featured in the film. So I can play audition things before I commit to buying them. And that saved me a lot of time and money and been a godsend, really. Um, because I used to just take chances on things that turned out to be just awful. You know? Yeah, I have to say, I, I at one point that I, I am prone to collecting, and I at one point made a rule that I have to, there has to be one thing that I want to hear or read as soon as I get home. Oh, great. Because there were times where I would go to the store and I would come back with, oh, that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. And they would just go straight into the shelves. And like, yeah. I, you know, it's like, this is really cool, or that's, a, you know, and it was sort of a version of that's a great price for that. Yeah. But I realized, yeah. like, afterwards, like, yeah, it's a great price for that, but I don't actually want it that badly. Or yeah. once I've heard it, once I'm kind of done with it. And yeah. so yeah. I, uh, so I have become a lot better about trying to, you know, making sure there's got to be one one thing I want to hear. Yeah, has made it a lot easier to uh, yeah. maintain some sense. Totally, that's a good rule. Yeah, um, it's been interesting because you know, for so long now, in the last year and a half, the stores were closed or inaccessible uh, because of COVID. So that changed everything, and I don't really like buying online much. Uh, I like to physically hold the thing in my hands and, and see it. And I, I don't, I don't have a list of albums. I'm trying to, I mean, there are very few records that I am still desperately searching for. I'm mainly looking for things that I don't even know exist in the world sure. and stumbling over them. Like I did the Jingle Bell jazz record and being finding, you know, being blown away, having, having that experience of, Oh man, this looks interesting. It's a 45. It's a label from some small town in the south of America. It looks, or it's so known, you know, it's like a Star Day label, country album, country 45. And it's an interesting title, and I'm going to take a chance on it. Um, you know, those are the things that I, that I really, and also uh, I'm looking for, like, PSAs and, and 
radio shows and spoken word albums and all that kind of stuff, which is more like ephemera, you know, within the Christmas vein that uh, I can use for interludes and cut used to cut in between songs. And those are the kind of things I'm trying to find because if if they're on eBay or Etsy's now somewhere, you can once in a while find an interesting record. Not very often. Um, it's usually eBay. They're just they're just outrageously expensive, and then shipping to Canada is just impossible. So, do you uh, explore digital music? Not very much. I rely on other folks who are really into that to help me in the community, like my friend Jim Goodwin at Xmas Underground, who you may or may not know. Right. Uh, that's all he does is search for new, primarily digitally released stuff. And he's really good. And he puts together great mixes and he has impeccable taste. And he's usually the first one to discover something, write about it. And he's, he's deep into this. So I can really trust him on the stuff he's recommending. And uh, he's, he's a madman. So I love that. Yeah, I, so I rely on him, a few others in the community who are more about new stuff, which I try and keep on top of, but I just, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm probably a more nostalgic person than, than many of these guys. So I gravitate towards the stuff from the past sure. that hasn't seen the light of day or isn't known and, and maybe was, you know, maybe 50 copies of this this single were repressed and it's some guy, you know, like for instance, uh, one, one song that comes to mind is um, Winter Man from the soundtrack of my movie, Winter Man by Clarence Reed. Um, I'll is, bet is, you. Is Clarence Reed the guy? Who, is Clarence Reed the guy who did Blowfly? Yeah, he is Blowfly. Okay, yeah. And because he's Blowfly, that's why he wasn't in my movie. <laughs> Before he became Blowfly, he was a fantastic, phenomenal uh, writer and R&B soul singer. And he's recorded a ton of great stuff. Uh, I wish he'd recorded some more Christmas, like a whole album of Christmas stuff, originals. But we have Winter Man, which is just fantastic. And it's one of those songs that's not directly about Christmas, but it's it's it hints at elements and it's, it's, it's talks, you know, it's, it fits within that before Christmas period where it's leading up to the holiday. And I'd always want music that captures that, that feeling of the, the anticipation and the sense of, of the holiday arriving and how things are changing in the streets. And it's a really funky, funky tune. I hear that cold wind blowing. You know, I don't think more than a few hundred of those were ever pressed and released, you know, at the time. Um, it was, you know, back then it was a singles market place, uh, which now we have those again. We have people releasing just singles through Pancamp, etc. 
But if you think about about it, now we're getting into territory you might want to talk about later. But um, let's say you were a black, like I'm talking about black artists because most of the best of the songs I've found that's collected within the realm of soul and R&B and singles, they've been black artists, many of them unknown, still unknown. Um, you know, you're a black artist in Mississippi, you have an idea for a Christmas song, you manage to scrape the money together to record it, you press 50 or 145s, and you have a window of about, what, four weeks? I mean, back then, you didn't hear Christmas music in October or November. You maybe start hearing it on December 10th or 15th, right? Right. So you had this narrow window, like the, the, the opportunities to get your song even heard or into a radio station were really limited. Then you had a window of two weeks when it could be played and people could assess it and decide whether it was good or bad. And then the rest of the year it languished. So, so many of these records just, you know, disappeared. And uh, those are the kind of gems I look, I hope to find. I know that everything changes. Yeah, it's strange how time marches on. Well, maybe there'll be some time in the future. Tell me about the experience of interviewing Wayne Coyne, uh, the Flaming Lips, for the film. Oh, man. <laughs> that, getting him to commit to being interviewed and in the movie was a movie within itself. Uh, I knew that Wayne Coyne cared deeply about the song that he'd written and recorded with the Flaming Lips called A Change at Christmas parentheses, say it isn't so. Um, which in a way is resonant of Bob DeRose in that it's a, it's a song that kind of questions the sincerity of folks at Christmas time and the hypocrisy of what does it really mean to sincerely wish a Merry Christmas and how we change for a brief period and we look out for and care for our fellow man, but then the rest of the time we can give, can I swear in this podcast? Yeah. Probably not. We can give two bleeps about people. You know what I mean? Sure. So it's a song that, that's, that's skeptical, which I really loved about it. But um, I'm getting off your question, which is how is it, what it was like to interview Wayne. I just knew like every artist I interviewed that he cared deeply about the song that he'd written and that that was a way into getting him to say yes to an interview. I had a few really big names in the film and I was a nobody filmmaker and had no access. And it took me years and years of constant letter writing and trying to get through that wall of agents and management and record labels because no one would help me. So 
ultimately, I managed to find Wayne's, Wayne's manager, who's been with him since the very beginning, which is now what? Flamingos have been around for 35 years, I think. Since, the, since, like, since around the time I first started making Mary Mix, 1990, uh, uh, late 80s. So it's been that long. Um, so I managed to find his manager's um, uh, email and I wrote him uh, my pitch and remarkably he got back to me and I was shocked. I was like, oh my God, this is great. I thought, oh, this, it's that easy. Okay, cool. <laughs> that was probably five, four or five years before the actual interview happened. So one of the funniest things he said in his email was, uh, so we went back and forth a lot. And I was waiting for an opportunity for them to come to town where I could connect with him and talk with him in person about why I wanted him in the movie. And like two years after reaching out to his manager, they came for a show, but I couldn't, his manager just wouldn't respond to me. I couldn't get the, the access to go backstage to meet him. So I had a package about the film ready in an envelope and I went to the front of the stage and I found who the stage manager was and I said, would you please give this to Wayne after the show? Uh, I'm a director, I'm making a movie, I'm a documentary, I'm hoping that Wayne will respond to this. I heard nothing back. Um, another year or two goes by. I'm having exchanges with his management, but nothing's happening. Like it's not resulting in anything. Finally, um, it's now like 20, this started in like 2005. It's now 2009, 2010. And Wayne is going to the South by Southwest Film Festival because he made a little movie all on his iPhone. I'd been to South by Southwest before I knew how it operated, how it worked. And I knew that if I bought a pass and I flew there, I could get time with him at the Q, after the Q&A when he was there, when everyone rushes to the stage and wants a piece of the guy and talk to him, right? So I managed to reach out. I lied. I said to his manager, um, hey, it just so happens I'm also going to South by Southwest. And I hear Wayne's going to be there for his film. Keep in mind, a flight is like $1,500. The pass was another six, $700. So I'm in this and hotel. I'm in this for one night to try and connect and meet with Wayne in person for over $3,000. And his manager says, well, I can't get you a, a give you a specific time or a meeting because Wayne's schedule is really fluid. <laughs> and if you know anything about him, he's, he's so creative and he's everywhere. He's just, he's just, he never sits down. Like he's just got his hands in so many different pies and he's working on so many different things. And he doesn't have a, 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 any kind of an attention span, but when he's focused, he's, he's amazing. And so I finally get to Austin. I go to the screening I wait my time till after the Q and A. You know, there's a, he waits to meet folks and sign autographs and things. I patiently wait in that line. 
finally gets to my, be my turn to talk with him. I shake his hand. I say, hey, Wayne, I'm Mitchell from Vancouver. I'm making a movie about, a documentary about Christmas music. He's like, oh, yeah, we're in that, aren't we? Ah, 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 ah. I'm like, what are you talking about? You mean you've already somehow privately committed to doing this with your management? And I haven't been told, and I wasted all this time and money to come when it was already somehow a done deal you're just telling me? He's like, it sounds really interesting. I'm really, he said, let talk to, uh, talk to him and we'll, we'll set it up. And, uh, he was there with, uh, his cinematographer and he handles all the actual sort of filming that the way that the playing lips do, including any interviews and stuff. So he became the point person, but within seconds, Wayne and his group, they, walked out of the little cinema into the street, which was filled with other uh, music fans there for South by Southwest. And he disappeared into the, into the, you know, somewhere. And I was like, what is going on here? Do I have a commitment? Sounds like I do. Uh, it was the closest thing as a yes that I'd heard so far. So I, I, I wrote back and the manager said, okay, he gave me the email address of the cinematographer. And uh, that's how we eventually set it up. So once we had Wayne committed to actually doing the interview, which I still wasn't even sure was going to happen when we got onto the plane with a crew and flew to Oklahoma City, uh, where Lane, Wayne lives with uh, what he calls the compound, which is a uh, about four ho homes all, all strung together in a really sketchy part of the city um, where I guess he pays really low rent. That's why they stay there. Um, but it's all um, secured with like fen huge fences and barbed wire. And so he's got like one house is the studio where all the equipment and gear and stuff is. Another house is their, their rehearsal space. Another house is his crazy home. And then the fourth house is where guests stay. So we get there and I, the point person was George Salisbury who does all of the, all of the videos, all of the artworks, all of the graphics, anything visually designed for the Flaming Lips is George's domain. So he was responsible for shooting the actual interview um, or setting it up rather. And uh, he said to me, so what do you want to do? I said, oh, this is funny. So we're walking to the studio where we're going to set up to do the actual interview with Wayne. And George says to me, so <laughs> Wayne likes sitting on the, on the floor these days. Ah, so, ah, ah. Okay. So we have to set up for a low scenario, low shot or whatever. I said, that's fine. If he wants to sit on the floor, that's cool. That's okay. Maybe we can bring in a few pillows or something. And I said, um, I, had, I knew that there were these neon trees from the Christmas, order, Christmas fetus ornament commercial. I said, I'd really love those. And I really want those trees. He's like, and he had an assistant with him. And he's like, okay. Uh, and he took us down to what was essentially a basement cellar that encompassed the entire underground below these four homes. It was just filled with props every prop from the giant 
glow balls that they have on stage to the confetti guns and everything was down there and all the trees and crazy Christmas lights and things were down there. And my goal was I wanted to create kind of this sort of fantastical sort of Doctor Who like Whoville sort of set design for Wayne to sit down inside and do the interview. So that's essentially what we did. The assistants just grabbed everything really quickly and set it all up for us. It was wonderful. Uh, Wayne arrived out of the, you know, he was like, I got to run to the bank, but I'll be right back and we'll sit down and talk. And that's exactly what happened. He sat down. I was really nervous because it had been such an ordeal securing this interview. I didn't want to fuck it up. And, you know, he said a few kind things when, when, when I, when we had a private moment before we started shooting, uh, when I greeted him and, uh, I think I'd sent him a few songs prior that were part of, that were in the soundtrack. And, and he said something along the lines of, I, I really dug those, those tracks you sent me, which I was like, wow, he took the time to actually listen to them. That's really cool. So I felt like we had a rapport already. And, uh, uh, we hadn't specified the time frame, so it could go two hours, it could go 30 minutes. I had no idea. It's going to be sort of up to him. And, uh, but once we started rolling, I was literally, it was like, I felt like I was riding a bull and I was going to be, you know, just thrown off in, within eight seconds because he talks so quickly and his the ideas and his mind is going all over the place. It's really hard to, try and stay, try and remember and follow up on something he said when he's moved from one tangent to the other and, and to know which way to go. I had a few specific questions, but mainly I just wanted to, as I do with every interview, just listen and respond to what the person gives you rather than come in with a, okay, you know, a bunch of questions that cross off and then the interview is done. That's that's the worst thing to do. So it's more about trying out and having a conversation. And he, he was just, he just got in that zone. Do, do, do. Christmas time is here. Do, do, do. Christmas time is here. Christmas time is coming. Do, do, do. There's snow falling do, do, do. on the street. Do, do, do. The holidays are near. Shoppers buying this is something really interesting we did a lot of when we first started filming just by because of the nature of the timing and how, when the money arrived etc and different crew people being available that i wanted to work with we filmed a lot of interviews in like springtime and when we watched them back like a month later when we were starting to do some rough editing they were terrible and uh, we had to reshoot them all. And that's why it took three years to actually film everything that you see in the movie, more almost four years, because we recognized, we discovered interviews done in April versus interviews done in November, December were polar opposites of each other. People's head space wasn't in the holiday. They weren't surrounded by all the music. They weren't surrounded by all the, all the, the nonsense and the other stuff that goes on and their psyches weren't prepared to really 
talk about in any detail how they felt about holiday music or or try and tap into those emotions from their childhoods, etc. And so, uh, fortunately, with Wayne, um, it was actually, gosh, it was like March when we filmed with him. So that was the only interview that went well that wasn't in November, December. Wow. But um, I was just holding on and hoping to, that I could get everything I needed while he was talking a mile a minute and throwing, giving us so much. And I left, we talked for about an hour and a half in total. And uh, he was a super gracious and kind and just, but I, it, it, it all unfolded so quickly. And I was so nervous. I wasn't sure what I had and I left there. And when we got back to the hotel, I said to my producer, I said, I, I said, I don't know. I think I really blew that. I don't know. He's like, no, we got some good stuff. Just wait. And whatever we, I film, I wait, you know, a good week or longer before I watch again. Cause I want to be completely removed and try and have some sort of objectivity when I'm watching the actual footage for the first time. And once I sat down with my editor and we watched the full hour and a half, it was like, Oh my God. Like he was so good. He touched on so many different aspects of what I wanted to really get at with, with the film uh, thematically and emotionally that I was like, he became a much bigger part of the movie than initially planned. Christmas in the air. You and many of the people in the film make Christmas yeah. mixes every year. How yes. did you get started making mixes? Um, I got started in just on a lark. It wasn't my intention. I was... It was 1990. I was an art student at uh, Emily Carr Institute of Art Design, and I was broke. So it was the end of the semester. I was a broke art student. I had no money to buy gifts for anyone. But I had finished all my assignments about a week early, and I had access to all of the studios, including the, the, uh, the audio booth, which had all kinds of great gear, including a really nice TIAC four track uh, recording setup. And uh, by that point, that was the same summer I discovered Blue Exodus and the Hawaiian Christmas records. And over the summer and fall, I found a handful more, maybe a dozen or so. And, uh, and my own prior collection of a few like Dean Martin and things like that, you know, already in my record collection. So I thought, Hey, why don't I make a tape for my friends and family of this weird Hawaiian stuff I found. And I went into the audio library and found a few bits of, um, you know, sound effects, Christmas sound effects and things. And I spent the next week putting together this little mix on cassette, and then I had to literally in real time sit there 
and take the master tape and duplicate it. If it was an hour long, 30 minutes per side, and duplicate in real time 50 copies. So that took 50 hours. Three, I think, really long nights where I just grabbed a case of beer and sat in that booth and <laughs> while the <laughs> tape recorder rolled and just kept making copies and copies and copies. And uh, gave that out with a, you know, really basic little DIY uh, artwork cover. And I called it Mitchell's Merry Mix. And gave that out to a few, you know, like I said, about not even 50 people, probably 30 people, including family and other student friends I had. And and, uh, after the holidays, I came back in the new year. The response to the mix was phenomenal. People were like, "Man, thank you so much! That your your Christmas tape saved my holiday. It was so cool to hear this different music and so refreshing." And I took that tape to all the parties I went to, and people went crazy. And I just was heaped all this praise on the tape and on me for doing this. And I was like, "Holy smokes! I didn't expect it to have any kind of an impact." let alone that big a one. So of course it meant I had to make another one the next year. And it had to be better than the first one and then the next year and the next year. And so here we are 30 years later and I've made one every Christmas uh, since that 1990, which was that first tape. Wow. Um, I used to make tapes for all other, you know, I used to just, that's one of my, favorite things to do was just make tapes for girlfriends or friends. And, and I would stay up late through the night, putting these together just at home, you know, on my cassette stereo system. And uh, they weren't all beautifully mixed and everything. This Christmas tape was a little more elaborate because it was fully mixed and thought through and it had a nice flow. And, and, uh, but now I look back on it, it's pretty embarrassing. It's, you know, there are way more, chestnuts on there that I would ever put on a tape now, you know, right. but it's all I had and I did the best I could. And the fact that it connected people and I had, I had a way of communicating my passion for Christmas music and ex- that explained it to me just rattling on. It was like, hear this and now you'll understand what it is I'm doing here. Oh, what a beautiful way to express myself knowing that Christmas and love Thanks to Mitchell Kazan, who took this interview very seriously. After we talked, he thought about our conversation and felt like he had fumbled an answer or two and wanted a second chance at them. I don't usually get that kind of concern from my subjects, so we reconnected for a second try. And since those answers were more cogent expressions of the thoughts he juggled the first time we talked, I went with them. As always, thanks to you for listening. If you like what you hear, share it. I'm really proud of 12 Songs and would love for more people to hear what we're doing here. If you haven't already done so, follow 12 Songs wherever you get your podcast content. We're on all the platforms. If you get yours from Apple, how about throwing us a five-star review? Obviously, go with what you feel, but it all helps make the algorithms work for us. Let's finish with Heather Noel, 
who recorded Santa Came on a Nuclear Missile from the American song poem Christmas. Daddy, is Santa really six foot four? From 2003. The album is essentially the product of a vanity recording scam where people paid to have their lyrics set to music and performed, frequently within different results. Still, the album undoubtedly has its charms, as you can hear what people naively thought the market might want. Santa Came on a Nuclear Missile certainly illustrates that, so perfectly that Kezin included it in Jingle Bell Rocks. Here it is. We'll be back in your feed next week. Talk to you then. Bye.